Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He is Professor Joffrey Roberts. He comes to us from Ireland, and he published a book back in 2006 in the UK, and I think 2008 here in the States. Title of the book is Stalin's Wars from Cold War to from World War to Cold War. And Professor Roberts is a, or was a professor? You're still a professor, or are you formally? Well, I'm, I'm what's called an emeritus professor. Thank yeah. you. You're an emeritus professor of history at University College Cork. He is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and has been awarded numerous awards over his academic career, including a Fulbright scholarship to Harvard and a Government of Ireland Senior Research Fellowship. He is a frequent contributor to British, Irish, and American newspapers and to popular history journals, and he has, he has acted as a consultant for a number of television and radio documentaries. And the first book I could find that he wrote was titled The Unholy Alliance, Stalin's Pact with Hitler, published 1989. Also, The Soviet Union and the Origins of the Second World War, published 1995. Also, The Soviet Union and World Politics, 45 to 1991, published in 1999. And 2002, Victory at Stalingrad, The Battle That Changed History. 2012, Molotov, Stalin's Cold Warrior. Also in 2012, Stalin's General, The Life of Georgi Zhukov. And with some other authors, he published in 2020, Churchill and Stalin, Comrades in Arms during the Second World War. And he has a book coming out next year titled Stalin's Library, A Dictator and His Books. And his website, which will soon to be updated this month, is his full name.net. So it's Jeffrey, spelled G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y, R-O-B-E-R-T-S dot net. And I'll put that in the show notes. But again, we're going to talk about this fascinating book that I read through. Title of it again is Stalin's Wars from World War to Cold War, 1939 to 1953. So Professor Jeffrey Roberts, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Well, you have a very long career with a bunch of different books that do tie into this, uh, the topics that we're covering in Stalin's Wars. Can you kind of talk about the arc of your career and what led you to write Stalin's Wars? Um, partly it's a generational thing. You know, um, I, I grew up in Britain, in London, not, not so long after the Second World War. Um, lots of stories about the war, including about the German Blitz on London. My family lived for it. The, the, the relics, remnants of the war, were, were were all around me, you know, as as a child. So, you know, f for people of my generation, you know, Second World War is is the kind of like dominating kind of historical event. Yeah, and a lot of my um, historical research has been either being has been about has been connected to the Second World War. What happened before the war? What happened during the war? What happened after the war? What's still happening as a consequence of the war? So, so in that sense. Um, uh, Stalin's Wars is is a um, is a is a continuation of that interest in the Second World War, which actually goes back to my uh, to my early uh, early early childhood. I mean, more specifically uh, than that, um, yeah. I, I originally, and perhaps still am, I was a foreign policy specialist, a specialist in the history of Soviet foreign policy. And, and you mentioned my first book there, uh, published in 1989, Stalin's Pact with Hitler. Um, the Unholy Alliance, Stalin's Pact with Hitler. So a book about the origins of the Second World War and the role that the Nazi-Soviet Pact played in that war. So, you know, having published that book and, and a lot of articles, another book as well, uh, my idea was to continue the story of um, the Second World, of, of Soviet foreign policy after the Nazi-Soviet Pact. So I had to say, well, you know, the, the pact was signed in 1939, 1941, the, the pact collapses when Hitler invades the Soviet Union. So my idea was to continue the story of Soviet foreign policy, the story of Stalin's policy, foreign policy, um, into the Second World War and indeed into the early, the early Cold War. So that was the original idea of this book. It was going to be a book about um, you know, Stalin's pact with Churchill, Stalin's pact with Roosevelt, yeah, uh, you know, the Grand Alliance uh, dur during the Second World War. But what happened was, is that during the course of my research, um, I had the opportunity to write uh, another book, a book about the Battle of Stalingrad called Victory at Stalingrad, uh, the, the battle that changed history. So that, that, that drew me into having a closer look at... Um, 
Stalin's military leadership, his specifically Stalin's warlord, yeah, his conduct of, of the war. So, so the, the whole idea of doing a book about uh, you know, the Grand Alliance, and the Soviet Union, and the Grand Alliance, Stalin, the Grand Alliance, broadened out into a much uh, uh, wider study of Stalin as uh, a, 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 as a war leader. So, so that's why I came to write this uh, uh, particular book. Right. So he really was a warlord, and you mentioned in your book he was supreme commander of the Soviet armed forces at one time, the State Defense Council, and People's Commissar for Defense, as well as the head of government and leader of the Communist Party. So at yeah. a certain part of that war, uh, he was really just over, he had all these offices, but everything starts in 1939, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Can yeah. you talk about how that got signed and what the impression was with Stalin of why he did decide to sign that? Yeah. Well, yeah, of course, you know, the, the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact or the Stalin-Hitler Pact, the Nazis like Pact, you know, is, a, is a kind of controversial um uh, topic, um, yeah, and, and that, that's the topic that, that's addressed in my first uh, couple of books. In fact, I think I could probably say so I've probably written, published more about the Nazi side back then than anyone else has, um, uh, uh, you know, ever. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, it, it's it's a controversial topic because um, you know, what what happened? Stalin signs this deal with with Hitler in August 1939, which enables uh, Hitler to invade Poland. Uh, with, with impunity, and then Poland marks the beginning of this series of events that we call the Second World War. Also, at the same time, this uh, non-aggression treaty with Hitler uh, contained a secret uh, protocol, uh, you know, whereby uh, you know, Hitler conceded certain territories in Eastern Europe, parts of Poland and, and the Baltic states, to a Soviet sphere of, uh, of interest. And then subsequently, uh, the Soviet Union expands into those territories allocated to Soviet Union as a sphere of influence under the terms of Nazi Soviet pact. So, so hugely kind of like controversial, uh, you know, uh, Hitler, some people say, well, you know, it, it was Stalin uh, by giving the green light to Hitler that started uh, the, sec the Second World War. Um, it, other people argued that this uh, action by Stalin on the eve of the Second World War was no accident. Uh, they argued that, he, that Stalin had been um, trying to... Uh, do a deal with Hitler for for a long time, yeah. You know, Stalin's preference always was to have some kind of pact uh, uh, with his fellow di dictator, the Nazi dictator Adolf Hitler. Um, so, so it's a very kind of controversial area, and my kind of like take on it was that, you know, and I explored it from Stalin's angle, from the Soviet angle, and what what I was trying to do was to see, you know, was to look at it from their point of view, to look at it from Stalin's point of view. And to use, you know, at the time I was um, working on this book, in mostly in the 1980s, there was a lot of new evidence uh, coming out of the Soviet archives. Now, at that time, we didn't have direct access to the archives. You couldn't go to Moscow and just, you know, like you can now, just walk into the archive and, and get confidential material. At that time, we were talking about, like, published archival material, published by the Soviets themselves. But nevertheless, there was a huge amount of this material. So, so that, that was my purpose, to see how it looked uh, from the Soviet point of view. And that, that was what yeah, the, the Unholy Alliance book was all about. And how it looked from the Soviet point of view was this, is that, yeah, is that the Soviet preference, Stalin's preference was um, a grand alliance, not with Hitler, but against Hitler, an anti-fascist alliance, an anti-Nazi alliance, a, a, you know, a, a collective security uh, front uh, against uh, German expansionism. So, so and, and that was what the evidence showed, I think, Stalin and the Soviets strove for throughout the 1930s, or at least from 1933 onwards when Hitler uh, came to power. But the problem was that that campaign for collective security against uh, you know, Nazi expansionism, against Hitler, that campaign failed. And it failed because the British and French didn't want to ally themselves to the Soviet Union because it was a communist country, because they didn't trust Stalin, because they were worried that what, what the British and French were trying to do was to uh, um, avoid a war at all costs. Now, Stalin's point of view was that war was coming. You know, the, the war was inevitable. The question was, you know, how is it going to be fought and what were going to be the alliances that fought that war? Okay, so, so the British and French had their own kind of um, reasons for preferring to... Um, a peace Hitler, and okay, one can discuss those. But you know, the end result was it stymied the Soviet campaign for an anti-anti-anti-Hitler, an anti-Hitler alliance. Now, this whole whole kind of scenario comes to um, a climax in 1939, when there there are actually um, uh, 
and, and negotiations between Britain, France and the Soviet Union, so-called Triple Alliance negotiations to form an anti-German front, an anti-Hitler anti -Hitler front. Because by 1959, the British and French had woken up to the fact that Hitler couldn't be appeased. Uh, that appeasing Hitler just led him to, 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 you know, to, to demand more and to be, become more aggressive and more expansionist. So there were these negotiations in 1959, but those negotiations uh, failed. And they failed from the Soviet point of view because from Stalin's point of view, because the British and French didn't seem to Stalin to be serious about uh, an anti-Hitler alliance, an anti-Hitler coalition. What Stalin thought was the British and French going was was to drag the war, the Soviet Union, into a war with Germany, and then you know let, let you know let the Soviets do all the fighting for them. Let the, let the Soviets and Germans slug, slug it out together. So in, in that context, Stalin backs away from the negotiations uh, about the uh, the triple alliance and instead he decides to do this uh, deal uh, with Hitler, this Nazi Soviet pact, this non-aggression treaty of August 1939, which kept the Soviet Union out of the war, kept the Soviet Union neutral, but also uh, ha had this, uh, this, this secret agreement with Hitler, which facilitated uh, Soviet territorial expansions. Okay, but, but my point in, you know, in the Unholy Alliance and in many other articles was that the Soviet preference, Stalin's preference, was not a deal with Hitler. It was a deal with Britain and France, a deal with the democratic states, but he couldn't get the kind of deal that, that, he, that he needed and that he wanted. And so, you know, uh, as a result, he turned to this the deal with Hitler. But as I said, it's a controversial topic. Not everyone agrees with my interpretation. All I can say is that that is what I think the evidence shows, that, you know, the Soviet evidence, the evidence from the Soviet archives. And indeed, you know, I started off by saying, well, of course, in the 1980s, we didn't have access to the Soviet archives directly. You know, it was just published material. Well, we have had access to those archives for the last 25, 30 years. And I can tell you nothing that has come out of those archives um, in any way undermines the kind of arguments that I put forward in 1989 in the Unholy Alliance. You know, the, the interpretation I made on the basis of the published documentation, the evidence that was available to me at the time, I think still uh, holds uh, holds water. And you also came to the U.S. You went to the uh, Library of Congress and Harvard. So you've done the legwork to kind of look at a lot of these oh, yeah. topics from the original. Yeah, yeah so I, I, yeah, I, obviously a lot of my uh, research has been based in the Russian Russian archives. That's my uh, my, my USP. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, sure. Of course, I've worked in American archives. I've worked in British archives. I've worked in all kinds of all, all kinds of archives. But the thing to remember here is that yeah, I'm trying to see things from the Soviet perspective, from Stalin's perspective. And if you're trying to do that, then the primary source is the Russian archives, the Soviet archives, because it's in those archives you find you know their confidential documents, what they're saying to each other in in private, uh, what their policy position is uh, in, in, in private. So so th that's the most important source of. Uh, of, of, of Soviet thinking, but of course, you know, you know what what you can find in Western sources, you know, uh, uh, memoirs by Western diplomats, all kinds of other material is also useful to my research as well. I was just going to mention that the memoirs that you got from a lot of these other uh, noted characters in that time, like Zhukov, and I think it was Vol Vol I can't remember what his name was, Volokhov, Easy, like a couple guys, Volkanov. So you were reading their memoirs too to kind of get an understanding of what was happening at that time. As yeah, well. yeah, of, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. As a historian, uh, I consult all the possible sources, including you know, what people you know, write in their diaries, uh, you know, what they write in their memoirs, or what they say after after the event. But you know, you have to be very careful here because you know the, the first rule of um, historical evidence is that you don't accept what people say in their memoirs or what they claim without supporting documentary evidence because time after time you find that what 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 they say what they claim is not right is that when you when you get access to the actual documents you find a completely uh you know a, a different story so i think you know, memoir evidence um has to be handled you know, with care with with with, uh, dis with discrimination and this is particularly true in relation to you know the, you know, the, the topic of of um the Stalin's wars, you know, about Stalin's uh, war leadership, because the the original body of evidence um, 
upon which people based their assessment of Stalin as a war leader. Okay, there was like Western material, uh, Western documents, uh, reports of Western diplomats and political leaders. You had the records of Stalin's um, discussions with uh, Churchill and Roosevelt at Yalta and Tehran and that kind of thing. But the primary source, in a sense, or in in, in confidentiality terms, were the memoirs of... um, Stalin's generals, yes, military, uh, m- military memoirs. Um, and okay, th- there are different sorts of military memoirs, and Soviet military memoirs about Stalin go through different, uh, different, different phases. But the original kind of like batch of memoirs, which came out after uh, Khrushchev um, denounced Stalin at the 20th Party Congress, 1956, and, and specifically Khrushchev denounced Stalin's war leadership. That was one of the main thrusts of his critique of Stalin as a leader and Stalin as a, a dictator, was that he was a poor, he was a poor war leader. That, that memoir, the memoir evidence from Soviet generals, tended to reflect the political line that Khrushchev was putting uh, at, at the 20th Party Congress. So, the, the, you know, based on this kind of memoir evidence, uh, and, yeah, and in the absence of other evidence, it's very difficult to judge the, the veracity of what these generals are saying in well, these claims that they're they are they are making. Because of course their overall tendency isn't, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like generals all over the world, they have a tendency to blame politicians when things go wrong and to claim the credit, you know, when things go right. So so Soviet generals were no different. So you know, there was a huge kind of like barrage of criticism of Stalin. Uh, after the 20th Party Congress, which finds expression in these Soviet military m- military memoirs. And, you know, outsiders had no way of dr- judging you know, how right they were. Okay, but you fast forward, collapse the Soviet Union, the Russian archives uh, open up, and then we actually get our access to the documents themselves, yes? Um, and the documentary evidence, the, the, the real primary source evidence you find in the Russian archives about what Stalin was saying, what doing, and also about what his generals were saying and doing, presented a completely different picture from this uh, highly negative uh, view uh, of, of Stalin uh, that you find in some 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 military mili- military memoirs, yeah. So so okay. So, so that, that's a cautionary tale about you know. <laughs> but it's important to the story because this opinion of Stalin is going through different pendulum swings: good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. But you, I mean, in your book, you cite he's working 12, 15 hours a day. You yeah. can see all of his appointment schedules from the primary yeah. documents. So he's yeah. clearly yeah. responsible. I mean, you know, okay, in, in Stalin's world, I mean, you know, my kind of like. Yeah, basic argument that he was a highly effective war leader. Um, you know, a great war leader. When I say great, it doesn't necessarily mean good, you know, in a moral kind of sense, but great, if very effective. Um, no, yeah, he won. Yeah, he defeated him. Right, I think you write in your book like it was a monumental uh, achievement. It really was the primary fighting in the war, World War Two. Yeah, it's a monumental. Right? Obviously, it's not just Soviet. It's not just Stalin's achievement. It's achievement of you know, his generals. It's achievement of his armed forces. It's an achievement of the Soviet people, who of course made huge kind of sacrifices to secure this victory. You know, some twenty-five million more actually, twenty-five million plus Soviet citizens died. Uh, you know, as a result of it's like of, one out of eight every Soviet citizens died during that war. It's an incredible number. Yeah, absolutely. One out of absolutely. four uh, injured. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay, but, but so you know, okay, so my argument is Stalin was a great warlord. Chances are that without Stalin's war leadership, you know, Hitler might have won. You know, the Soviet war effort might have collapsed, or um, whatever. You know, yeah. So you know, so I don't think there was any substitute for Stalin's war leadership. And the reason for that was, of course, because of course, you know, the Soviet Union by the time you get to the Second World War was Stalin's system. Yeah. It, you know, it depended on, you know, for its effective performance in any way, actually, not just militarily, it depended on Stalin individually, personally, on his performance, yeah? So it's not surprising, you know, it's not surprising that Stalin is such a, a central figure. Right, okay, so, so he's, he's there, but I mean, so he okays the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, 39, right? That allows Hitler to focus towards France and the Western Front, buying Stalin time, and it was I, one of the things I learned in your book that I didn't know is the amount of exchange of goods that transpired after the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Mm. Like there was a 
a significant amount of trade between those the two groups that helped kind of the Hitler's war machine, right? Yeah, listen, uh, every decision, every major decision, and lots of my decisions are Stalin's decisions. Yeah, that's one of, you know, one of the most amazing things we found out when, when we got into the archives and, and were able to view Stalin on a day-by-day basis and what he was doing. It's the huge amount of work he did, yes? The huge number of decisions he took. And, you know, he's the overwhelmingly dominant uh, you know, can't figure there. Yes, you know the whole whole thing uh, revolves um, re- revolves around him. Him, yeah, yeah. So all the deci- all all the, you know, the decision to sign the pact with Hitler, how that um, arrangement was operated, um, you know, 1939, 1940, 1941. That's all all is doing. And you say, yeah, th- there was a lot of um, trade. Um, there was a part of the deal was a, a revival of um, uh, trade relations between the Soviet Union and Germany. In the 1920s, the Soviet Union and Germany had um, you know, very good, very extensive trade relations. In fact, the Germany was, I think, yeah, the Soviet Union's major trading partner in the 1920s. When Hitler comes to power, that relationship um, collapses. Um, but it's revived after the Nazi-Soviet pact. So, there, there, but, you know, but, but the... It's a two-way trade, yes? Okay. So the Soviets supply uh, lots of raw materials to the Germans, oil, agricultural products, other kinds of raw materials as well. In return, they get, uh, you know, finished industrial projects and also access to a certain amount of um, uh, military technology. So it's actually, you know, quite a a balanced relationship. Now, some people say, well, by conducting this trade, the Soviets helped to strengthen their future enemy, you know, the, the, the country that attacks them with such devastating effect in June 1941. That's true. But, you know, the Soviets also gained from this relationship uh, as well. I, I would argue they gained as much from uh, trade as, 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 as the Germans did, yeah. And so 40 comes around, there's fighting, the Germans invade, I think, the Nordic countries, France. Yeah. And... Stalin isn't fully naive. I mean, I think the historical impression supposedly is that what happened in June 22nd, 1941 was a surprise. Can you talk about the events surrounding that and what Stalin was thinking? Well, okay, but the the first surprise for Stalin and for everyone else uh, was what happened the year before. That was the collapse of France. Yeah, the German... um, There was the First World War. There was a stalemate on the Western Front, wasn't there? It didn't happen during the Second World War. You know, um, the German um, attack on France in uh, May, June 1940 succeeded, succeeded within um, uh, within a few weeks. And France was occupied by the Germans, as were a number of other uh, West European countries. Uh, and Britain was isolated from, from continental, continental Europe. So, yeah, <laughs> Germany lost the First World War. In effect, in 1940, Hitler won the Second World War. Yeah. He actually, you know, he, Germany was now in in command of um, continental Europe. Okay, Britain was still fighting on. There was still Stalin and the Soviet Union. But in terms of the, the central core of continental Europe, Germans were uh, in control. There was German domination, German, German hegemony. Now, that was something that Stalin hadn't counted upon. What Stalin had expected, like everyone else, was that, you know, the war between Germany on the one hand and Britain and France on the other would be a, a repeat of the Second World, of the First World War, a kind of long drawn out war of um, war, war of attrition. So it was completely unexpected uh, that you know that particular conflict, war, yeah, you know, the European Hitler's war with the two great European powers would be resolved so quickly and so easily. In, in, in Germany's favor, so obviously that and that kind of like changes the whole scenario for Stalin. Of course, that makes Hitler and Germany much, much more dangerous from the Soviet point of view because they're no longer tied down uh, with uh, their war with, with France by France, uh, and, and uh, you know the British position at this stage uh, is, is is quite, quite, quite. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, defensive it, it, on the defensive is probably so. so that, that, and, and, and so, what happens then is this: is that in response to that um, huge accumulation of German power um, and 
from the Soviet point of view, the growing German strategic threat, uh, Stalin and the Soviets take certain actions to strengthen their defensive um, position, yes? Um, so, for example, uh, you know, in, in response to what's happened in Western Europe, the Soviets um, strengthen their grip on the Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, and they incorporate them uh, in, into, into the Soviet Union. They also, uh, you know, um, expand into um, a part of Romania, which is called Bessarabia, which has been part of the Tsarist Empire, but the Romanians occupied it in they also attempt to strengthen their position in uh, in the Balkans and in the uh, the Black Sea and in the, and in the Mediterranean uh, as well. So so there's various like Soviet responses to you know the huge German victory in Western Europe. Right. The problem is that Hitler and the Germans viewed those Soviet actions as being aggressive and as being you know uh, potentially threatening to them. And, and it's, that's the point on which actually you know the road to Operation Barbarossa. The German invasion of uh, of Russia, of the Soviet Union, uh, begins. It begins in, you know, in 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 the summer of 1940 with Soviet defensive reactions and measures, and the German um, you know, re re response to those. Yeah. Now, okay, a lot happens in between, but okay. So then, then we come to um, your question about you know what's going on in June 1941 when it's. Um, Okay, it's 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 obvious. It's obvious to everyone that sooner or later there's going to be a a Soviet a German a Soviet a Soviet German war. The question is, when would that war come, and what would happen when the war uh, the war broke out? And, and no one knew the answer to those questions. Uh, certainly not to the what would happen question until it actually. Uh, until it actually happened. Although, of course, there'll be, given what had happened to France, there'll be some expectations that, that, that perhaps the Soviet Union would collapse under a German military onslaught, just like uh, the French the French had done. Okay, so so look at from Stalin's point of view. You know, war is coming. He's not sure when it's coming. Um, okay, he has a lot of, like, uh, information coming into him, warning him of the danger. In some cases... Uh, Giving dates of when the Germans are actually uh, going, 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 going to attack. Um, so the question, from his point of view, is how do you um, respond to that scenario? You know, there's, there's going to be a war. We're not quite sure when. Um, okay, so you know, one response to Stalin is, well, he doesn't quite believe that the Germans are actually going to invade the Soviet Union in the summer 1940. He doesn't believe it because it doesn't make sense. Because, okay, Britain is on the periphery of this struggle at this time, but Britain is still fight on. Why would Hitler take on the Soviet Union when he still had to deal with the British? Yeah? So why would Hitler yeah, embrace the danger of a, a two-front war? Remember, of course, it was a two-front war that led to Germany's defeat in the First World War. If there had only been one front war for Germany, Germany would have won the First World War. So, so yeah, Stalin doesn't think it's kind of like rational for Hitler to embark upon uh, an invasion of the Soviet Union, why he still has the British to deal with. And, and also there's a certain perception that, you know, in Germany itself, you know, there, there's a peace faction as well as a war faction. Yeah. Uh, and, and Hitler is in the middle of a debate about whether or not to go to war with the, with the Soviet Union. You know, some people argue it. No, I was arguing, arguing yes. So, 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 the Soviets think the Germans and Nazis are divided on this question about whether or not to invade. Right? Okay. Um, the other. So, so that's one reason why Stalin, um, to a certain extent, discounts the danger uh, of a German invasion. Right? But there's another reason. And this is much, much more uh, important reason. And yeah, I've been. Yeah, this is what I argue in the. Stalin's Stalin's wars, and yeah, it, it's what I've argued in all kind, you know, many many times in all kinds of different contexts, and it's a kind of like point that people don't seem to be able to grasp because they keep going back to you know, the old arguments, and you know, my argument is this: is that you know, Stalin didn't think it mattered if he got caught by a surprise by Hitler and the Germans invaded sooner than he expected, right? He didn't think it mattered that much. And he didn't think it mattered that much because from his point of view, the Soviets had 
a huge defensive force on their western western frontiers so he was confident that whenever the germans attacked whatever they did soviet defenses would hold would stop the advance and there would be time to um mobilize the red army or soviet armed forces to actually take uh counter offensive action and it's not just stalin he thinks this this is what he's been told you know by you know by his generals yeah of course what happens is that's a, a fundamental so so you know stalin, that's, that's my argument stalin didn't think it mattered okay if he got the timing of the attack wrong so what uh you know you know whatever's the scenario, what's going to happen is there's going to be these border battles. Uh, you know, it's going to take a while for the Germans to make any strategic breakthroughs. And in the meantime, we can um, uh, operationalize our own plans. And so Sorry to interrupt, but one of the things that you also state in your book is they were afraid of mobilization because in World War One, mobilization meant war. Yeah, That yeah, was kind sure. of the engine that created the whole... Yeah, yeah. The whole Start, World War One situation. So absolutely. they're afraid of repeating that too. Yeah, it's mobilization needs war because that is kind of what happened uh, during the July crisis, which led to the First World War. Is that Russian the Russian Tsar's mobilization had provoked a German counter mobilization? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Stalin, yeah, doesn't want to provoke the war um, prematurely. He doesn't want to promote the war prematurely, yeah. So he wants to restrain action. Of course, the danger with um, with restraining action is, well, okay, you don't want to provoke war, but what if the Germans are going to attack anyway? I mean, what, what are you doing here? But my point has always been that you know Stalin realized the danger that maybe he miscalculated, maybe you know, maybe the Germans were going to attack whatever he did, whether he mobilized or not. But Mark was he didn't think it mattered that much. He thought there would be enough time to actually retrieve the situation. But that didn't happen. When the Germans attacked on June 22nd, 1941, they have a massive uh, success, a massive series of breakthroughs. Uh, Soviet, so, 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 Soviet defences uh, crumbled. And that, that outcome really shocked Stalin, because that's not what he was acting. Not just shocked Stalin, also shocked his shocked his generals as, as well because of course after the event uh you know particularly after the 20th party congress soviet generals are very keen to point the finger at stalin and say well say well you know well, we warned him the germans were going to invade we tried to get him to mobilize and be, be better prepared for this invasion but he wouldn't listen uh to us uh well i think that's true but i think what's also true is that the generals themselves shared stalin's complacency about um, the, the effectiveness of, of Soviet defences, yeah. So, so, so you know, okay, this disaster which unfolds on June twenty second, nineteen forty one, you know, huge, massive success of the German invasion, Barbarossa, which leads to huge kind of like territorial conquest, also leads to huge kind of casualties by uh, you know on the part of the Red Army. Yeah, absolutely, that is Stalin's responsibility. It's his miscalculation about the likely impact of the German invasion. That, 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 that's the big mistake. But it's not just his mistake. It's also the mistake of his generals. And it's also a function of Soviet military doctrine and planning, which didn't anticipate uh, what actually happened. Right. And then and also there was this kind of myth or consideration. I, don't, I forgot if it was from Khrushchev or somebody that Stalin spent like six weeks in a kind of fugue state or a panic state. What are your thoughts about that as far as his response to the June 22nd, 41 invasion? I, 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 yeah, okay. Well, I think that's a, another kind of myth, um, a very um, persistent myth, I have to say. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, certainly Stalin was uh, shocked by what happened, by the initial um, success of the German invasion. And within a week of the German invasion, all the Soviet-like... Um, counter-offensive plans were in um, disarray. They'd already suffered kind of like huge military defeats. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of their soldiers had been trapped by German encirclement. And the Germans had, uh, had already captured Minsk, you know, the capital of Belarus, you know, which is a key staging post on, on the road to Moscow. So there's no doubt um, that Stalin was shocked 
by by these events, uh, and he was also suspicious about what might be going on. You know, whether or not some of his generals might be involved in a, a conspiracy uh, against him or, or in cahoots with with the Nazis. Um, so, so he's definitely shocked. But I, I, but the the evidence is that. Um, he remained in command of himself and of the situation. Yeah, yeah. This story that he had a um, some kind of nervous collapse as a result of invasion it comes from Khrushchev, from Khrushchev's um, uh, report to the Twenty Party Congress. This is one of the stories he tells in that report, and then then he repeats that report in, in his memoirs and other memoirists. You know, give variations of the same this this same story. But when you look at the the documentary evidence, it's, it's quite, you know, it's absolutely crystal clear that Stalin didn't actually have any any kind of uh, mental or, or nervous uh, collapse. So one piece of evidence, for example, is um, it's his appointments diary. So we know, you know, who, who, who he saw during this period, the first few days after the German invasion. He saw a huge number of people. We know all the, the, the decrees and orders that he, he signed. Yeah. We, we have the, the evidence of, you know, People who were closely working with him during this period of time, which, which Khrushchev wasn't. Khrushchev was in Ukraine; he wasn't in Moscow at all. So, you know, overwhelming documentary evidence for the, for the first few days after, um, you know, uh, the, the June twenty second, you know, Stalin was in control. You know, but, you know, was hanging on in there, yeah, and you know, and yeah, mobilizing uh, a response to what right, was, and, what was going. He, I think there was a, like it's, at least within that time, within the six months. He gave a, I think you talked, he gave a crucial speech, I think, December 7th in Moscow, right? Saying we're going well, to talk. Well, there's two crucial speeches. There's, the first speech is he gives, he makes a radio broadcast in uh, on July 3rd, um, uh, uh, 1941, yeah? This is his first, and this was his first ever radio broadcast, uh, by the way, the first time he'd, he'd ever done it. So this is his first. Uh, war, war, war speech. Now, just before he gives that broadcast, he does disappear from view um, for about thirty-six to forty-eight hours. So, a couple of days, he's at, he, you know, he's nowhere to be seen. He, he know he's at his dacha, his country. Seems like he might have hit the wrong button. Uh, I think he gives two crucial speeches. He'll probably pop back in. The uh, uh, yeah, Joffrey, Jeffrey Roberts. He gave another speech, I think, on June 7th, I think it was, where he, I think it was, he just basically rallied the troops. And I think one of the interesting things in Jeff's book is he may not have, Stalin may not have been a great kind of military leader or a general, but he was a fantastic organizer. Like he was constantly organizing stuff. And one of the great things of the war that made the, Russian or the Soviet Union win was the fact that they were able to really outproduce the Germans, like the outputting tons of tanks and uh, things like that. So you have to kind of give him credit. Like, I think, yeah, there he goes. All right, okay. you're back. You're back. Yeah, sorry, sorry, just... So two crucial speeches. Okay, yeah, the, this radio broadcast is, is, is the first one. Now, just before that broadcast, it did disappear for a couple of days. And some people um, yeah, argue that during this, this was, this is when he had his nervous breakdown just before the speech. My argument is that, is that the reason he disappeared was he wanted to think things over and he also wanted to find a bit of time and peace to actually write this very... Uh, crucial speech. Uh, that that that's that's kind of my, my argument. And, you know, if he did have a did have a breakdown, it was a, it was a he staged a miraculous recovery because this you know, radio broadcast uh, was a brilliant uh, you know brilliant speech, brilliant piece of theatre was was quite important in rallying the population to the defence of the country. Okay, then the other big speech he makes is in um, November. Uh, November seventh, November seventh eighth in Moscow. Okay, that's so right. by this time. You know, the Germans are are approaching Moscow. You know, th there's a big battle in uh, under progress uh, for Moscow. You know, the Germans are trying to uh, you know, take uh, to capture the suburbs. Right, they capital. made it to the suburbs, right? Sorry, they made it to the suburbs of Moscow. Absolutely, very, very, very. You know, the the, the inner suburbs of Moscow. If you you know, if you go to Moscow and um, you, know, you drive from the airport you know, into the city center, you know, there are like you know various monuments which mark. 
at the furthest expense of the uh, of the German uh, penetration of Moscow's periphery. And it's amazing how close that is to the the, the city centre. Yeah, so so the Germans uh, come very close to achieving their goal of taking Moscow. And had they taken Moscow, okay, it's quite possible uh, that that maybe that would have um, signaled victory. Uh, for for, for you know, the, the success of operation of operation Barbarossa, but that doesn't happen because you know, uh, you know the Red Army defenses uh, hold, and Stalin's speech on November seventh, or yeah, uh, you know, he makes two speeches around this time. One of which is in Red Square itself, where you have um, you know, uh, troops marching through the square on on the way to the front and you know, in this kind of like uh speech you know he it's a very like you know it's a very well like his radio broadcast of july 3rd it's a patriotic speech it's a call to patriotic defense uh, of the of the motherland and it's widely seen to be um a crucial kind of moment in steadying everyone's nerves uh, in Moscow and in and in and in defense, the defense of Moscow. Had Stalin you know, fled Moscow, had Stalin not um, you know, performed as well as he did in this particular context, then yeah, you know, maybe things might have gone the Germans' way. I, I always describe this uh, speech, this you know, November or these two speeches of Stalin as being equivalent to remember you know, Churchill's speeches uh, after after. You know, the British defeat and re- retreat from from Dunkirk. You know Churchill's finest hours. You know, right. you know this was you know Stalin's Moscow speeches, November nineteen forty one. This was his kind of like fireside. This, this his moment. You know, one of the crucial moments in which the war could could have turned in very different directions. Uh, and this is where he stood his ground and, and played a crucial role in in uh, in bolstering uh, the defenses of Moscow. And then, of course, what happens is. The German attack is is held, and then uh, in December 1941, uh, the Soviets launch a a massive counteroffensive uh, in front of Moscow and drive uh, the Germans away from uh, the German capital. Right. So, I mean, you see that he may not have been the ideal military commander, but as far as psychology, morale, political history, uh, he you think he was indispensable in those things. And also, it was interesting that the Soviets didn't have really have, or him, didn't have much of a defensive strategy. They were thinking about attacking uh, in 41 instead of kind of uh, having a creative kind of de- defensive structure. So their sensibilities, even at that time, didn't fit the German invasion, right? Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're an attacking offensive argument. This goes back, goes way back. Um, you know, you, know, you don't win, win wars by... Um, defense, you win them by you know counterattack by counteroffenses. In fact, you know throughout the whole war, you know, from day one of the, the Soviet-German war, that's the kind of strategy uh, that the Soviets pursue. You know, counterattacking, counteroffensive uh, st- strategy. Okay, the thing is though, in, you know, the, the, for the first year or so of the war, it's not a very successful strategy, and it leads to you know defeats, um, huge kind of like casualties and setbacks, but. Uh, you know, eventually uh, that strategy, um, you know, it, it works. You know, they actually succeed. And of course, the great turning point um, is you know the Battle of Stalingrad. Okay, so, so there is the Moscow battle. Uh, that's one example of you know you defend and then you counterattack. Uh, but the other great uh, turning point of, of this period of war is the is the Battle of uh, Stalingrad. Yeah, where you, you know, can you talk about that? Can you uh, explain why Stalingrad was so crucial? Okay. Well, okay. So, yeah, when the Germans failed to um, take Moscow in um, in the autumn of 1941, and when you get this Soviet counteroffensive uh, in front of Moscow, which is of course led by uh, uh, you know, Marshal uh, Zhukov, yes, uh, well, at that time he's General General Zhukov, who's uh, as you mentioned, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, uh, I, I wrote his uh, I wrote his uh, biography. Come back out. Anyway, Stalingrad was really important. It's interesting when I was looking at uh, kind of the Stalingrad study, Stalin actually had personal attachment in during the war between the white and the reds during the Russian Civil War after the Tsarists collapsed because he defended, it was called Tsaritsyn at the time, it became Stalingrad, but it was really remarkable. So he won that war in the in the Russian Civil War, and then when the Germans invaded, this was the crucial battle that won. So it's almost like he was at the right—he was the right person 
for that conflict, that one key battle, the Stalingrad battle, that was really crucial for Hitler. I think it was because if he would have conquered that, then the Germans would have had access to unlimited oil, unlimited stuff, but uh, unlimited resources and granaries and things like that, and then could have turned north against Moscow, but that never happened. But Stalingrad was really just a brutal war. Yeah, so, so, sorry about that. That's this fine. this interview is just turning into a you know a disaster of kind of epic proportions. <laughs> it's okay. I was you know well, when you're gone, I'm just filling in for you. I'm reading from your book, so I was telling the listener that the uh, Stalingrad was really important, and the, uh, Stalin himself, or George Jugosbili, or whatever his real name was, he had a direct connection to that territory defending Tsaritsyn during yeah, yeah. the white and red Russian. And actually, you can probably, he had to have learned of what happened in those early 20s and put it in the 40s because it's almost like the same topography. The whites were, you know, the reds had the Moscow, kind of the central part of the country. And then the whites came in from the south. So it was really, I mean, he probably had to learn strategic things from that about organizing as well. Would you agree with that? Well, Stalin was quite familiar with a lot of the topography, actually, because um, during the you know uh, the Russian Civil War, you know, after the Bolshevik Revolution, he didn't just serve on um, you know what, the Stalingrad front or Tsaritsyn. He, he, he served in all kinds of different theaters. Yeah, during during the Civil War, you know, he was like Lenin's um, troubleshooting troubleshooting troop. Uh, during the civil war so he was sent to all kinds of like different fronts to sort of various, various prompts so he was quite he was very self-knowledgeable yeah and i'm not going you made an important point there is that um one of the key kind of like reference points for stalin and uh, and others uh experientially uh when the second world when they get involved in the second world war the soviet general you know the, the experiential event they go back to of course is is this is the russian civil war yeah, well, what happens then? In fact, you know, one of the first things that uh, the Soviets do upon the outbreak of the war is to set up a, um, a state defense uh, council. Yeah, and that's modeled on a similar body that the Bolsheviks set up uh, during uh, you know during the Civil War. Um, in his um, in his radio broadcast, uh, you know, uh, speech, and also in, in you know in, in other speeches, look, and Stalin made the point is that you know look. Okay, we we suffered huge defeats uh, during during the civil war. You know, we we were like corralled into uh, central Russia, but nevertheless, we um, you know, you know uh, we emerged from that uh, from that civil war victorious. So so there's a certain you know, despite all the huge losses, the defeats, the retreats throughout the war, you know, Stalin has a, a certain kind of like confidence that you know, that. The Soviet Union is going to survive. The system is going to survive. The Red Army is going to survive. That victory is going to be won eventually. And part of that kind of confidence is is based on this this other experience uh, of the, of the Russian Civil War. So I think that's uh, uh, that, that's quite an important point. You asked about Stalingrad. Okay, sure, Stalingrad. Okay, so you know, when the Germans fail to take Moscow in the autumn of 1941, that effectively means that Operation Barbarossa has failed. And Operation Barbarossa was you know, an operation to defeat the Soviet Union and occupy um, you know, vast swathes of, of, of Soviet territory during the course of a single uh, strategic campaign. Yeah, it, within a, within a, a matter of month, months. Yeah, a kind of blitzkrieg um, invasion and occupation of European uh, Russia. That that's the whole concept. But when the Germans found in Moscow and they get driven back, and you know their advances on other fronts have been um, uh, you know, stopped, you know, so they got as far as Leningrad in the autumn of 1931, as well as Moscow, but they failed to take Leningrad. Uh, they, they penetrated quite uh, deeply into uh, southern Russia and into the Ukraine, but even there, uh, around this same period, the, 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 you know, they received a few setbacks and were forced to retreat uh, in, in, in some some cases, yeah. So, so you know, the Battle of Moscow, you know, the German Blitzkrieg, war campaign in russia has failed so hitler's faced with a much more prolonged conflict he's faced with uh, a war of attrition on the eastern front much like the war that the germans had, had to fight during the first world war so how's he going to conduct that war well one of the ways he, he, he chooses to conduct that war he chooses to turn it into a war of uh, of resources yeah and the key resource here is oil okay so 
the German uh, campaign in the summer of 1942, which ends up uh, with the Battle of Stalingrad, is fundamentally uh, a war for oil. It's a war to uh, capture um, Soviet uh, oil fields. Uh, in in southern Russia, Ukraine, and and and, and the Caucasus, um, to, to gain control of the oil for the Germans themselves, uh, but also to deny it to uh, you know to, to the Soviets. Okay, and what happens at the Stalingrad site? Initially, um, <clears throat> the German Stalingrad campaign is uh, is very successful. Um, just like um, Operation Barbarossa had been initially successful, <coughs> the um, you know, the Germans drive the Soviets back. They actually get you know, quite a long way in the direction of capturing uh, the oil fields at uh, Baku. Baku's the key target of, of this of this campaign, and they also uh, you know they also reach uh, Stalingrad. Stalingrad, a kind of like strategic pivot uh, on, on on the Volga in terms of um, oil supplies up the river from uh, from south from south to central and northern Russia but also um you know a hugely important psychological uh, target from their point of view from Soviet point of view because of course it's Stalin city it's Stalingrad it's the city former city of Tsaritsyn which you know during the civil war Stalin had helped to uh, save for the Bolsheviks uh, and which had been uh, renamed Stalingrad in his honor uh, in 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 nineteen twenty five, so so it's a hugely uh, important prize, and just like Barbarossa, the Germans almost succeed. They almost succeed in capturing um, Stalingrad, but the Soviets uh, hang on. It's a kind of epic and he- heroic uh, and heroic struggle. Um, but not only do the Soviets hang on, while they're hanging on, they're preparing a a counteroffensive. Yeah, uh, and, and and they launched this counteroffensive in uh, November 1942, and it's an encirclement uh, operation which basically cuts off uh, German uh, forces uh, in Stalingrad itself, and also threatens to to cut off the other prong of the the German advance in South, which is which which is to, you know, towards Baku. So so Stalingrad is really the first example where this. Um, Soviet commitment to counteroffensive action on a large kind of scale uh, actually succeeds. Uh, it, it, it doesn't succeed completely, uh, by the way, yeah, because, of course, the Germans in uh, Stalingrad are, 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 are surrounded and, and defeated, but actually, um, uh, you know, the other German armed forces, which have been heading towards Baku, they managed to uh, escape this uh, entrapment and to fight another day. But that was kind of the high water mark of the German advance. So once Stalingrad falls, yeah. the rollback commences, right? Yeah. I, I, once Stalingrad falls, uh, the Germans are on the defensive. They're on the retreat. Okay, now you do have the Battle of Kursk in July, but in, in, in a way, you know, Kursk, from the German point of view, is a is a defensive battle. It's a battle to to strengthen their defensive position. Yes. Um, you know, it's not, it's, you know, it's not a, you know, it, it, the, the German attack at Kursk is not a tr- strategic war winning campaign like, you know, the advance that Barbarossa was or the advance in the south to Stalingrad. It's a much more limited, uh, you know, military, a military, military operation. Right. And so, so that, that is you know, the great turning point of, of the war. Um, once the start, once the, the Germans have lost at Stalingrad, you know, there's really no way back for them. You know, they're going to lose the war. It's just a question of, of when and how, how long it's going to take, you know, what the costs uh, are going to be. And Stalin's view, I mean, you have to see him not just as a military leader. Leader, I think one of his associates said he had a really good global view of everything. Um, but it's also the fact that he could rally the people and the production values. So he, I mean, he... Has, do you think he has to? T- he gets credit for that, right? Not not just the military stuff, but the production. Increases. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. He is he is the supreme commander. He's the the head of government. He's the political leader. He's the symbol, the patriotic symbol. You know, he's the cultural, uh, you know, uh, icon. Uh, he's the great organizer of the Soviet war effort. He's the you know the prop- propagandist in chief uh, in terms of uh, you know, inspiring uh, you know pop- popular struggle. Yeah, absolutely. And so they make that, that march all the way to uh, all the way to Berlin, right? Yeah, let, let, let me come back to this point. 
point is, is that you know, Stalin's like crucial central role was obvious to everyone at the time, which is why you know Western leaders, Churchill, Roosevelt, everyone was so forceful in their praise of Stalin and his leadership during the war and, and, and had no doubt whatsoever how central it was, how indispensable it was. And, of course, that kind of like perception which begins to form in the middle part of the war, particularly from the battle, well, actually, even before then, yeah, I think from, you know, you know from Moscow onwards, that, that kind of like you know, positive perception of Stalin as a highly effective warlord, warlord, yeah. By the time you get to 1945, when there's, of course, that, you know, that perception is, is deeply uh, kind, kind of embedded, yeah, in, in, in perceptions, consciousness uh, about, you know, the Soviet-German war and, who had played uh, a crucial role in it, i.e. Stalin as an individual. And in a way, it's the point I want to make before you go to your next question. You know, my book was a kind of an argument for a return to that kind of common sense view of Stalin's war leadership, which was prevalent in 1945. The Soviet Union, the Red Army, had just won the greatest military um, victory in history, the greatest war in history. They'd come back from you know, near disaster. This, this amazing kind of victory. Stalin was the leader, supreme commander, everything. Of course, you know, he, he was central, he was important. Of course, without Stalin, it wouldn't, wouldn't important. It was it's an obvious kind of point of perspective. Uh, but what happened subsequently, you know, and it's, you know, it, 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 it's partly because of the Cold War, but it's also because of a Khrushchev's, um, you know, destalinization campaign from 1956 onwards. Is that kind of like common sense view of Stalin as a warlord? You know, gets gets distorted, gets uh, you know, blown aside, gets yeah, whatever, replaced by a, a different kind of stereotype. Right. I mean, and then you kind of see that he, uh, you know, they're, they're, I think their critique was that he was part of a cult of personality, yeah. and they have all this these critiques of him, but uh, which is true. Now, okay, <laughs> a lot of what uh, Khrushchev said about Stalin. At, the 20 party con con uh, congress was true yeah i mean stalin there was this cult of personality you know stalin was a uh, brutal dictator in many ways he did preside over years of mass terror during the, the 1930s he was like responsible politically and morally responsible for you know the deaths of millions of innocent, innocent people so a lot of that um Khrushchev critique was absolutely uh, spot on. Of course, what Khrushchev didn't mention when he was when he's denouncing Stalin is his own role in all these events, his own like culpability. Yeah, yeah. It's all Stalin's fault. Yeah, it's not the party's fault or the leadership's fault. It's just this one individual. Very, very, very. Clean. So blame shifting, right? More blame shifting. Yeah, absolutely. So, 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 yeah, yeah. Okay, but where he was wrong, I think, <laughs> was in his you know, criticism of Stalin's war leadership. Yeah. Right. No, no, which is not to say there aren't criticisms to be made of, of Stalin's war leadership. There are many, many. We could have a lot of big discussion about that. Mistakes he made, you know, the limitations, all, all kinds of things like that. But, but overall, you know, it's a hugely kind of impressive um, performance, yes, uh, you know, uh, as a war leader. And that's the reason why, of course, okay, in Russia today, you know, Stalin is a, you know, a hugely you know, popular figure. Yeah, uh, yeah, he, his, you know, he has, very, you know, all the uh, polls show that great majority of people in Russia, you know, have a, a high opinion of them, a positive uh, uh, opinion of them. The main reason is because of, because they see him as being the great war leader. Yeah, the one who defeated, the one who helped save the country from Hitler and the Nazis, not just save Russia from Hitler and the Nazis, but save Europe. Whole world from right. it, 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 the world. I mean, really, I who knows what would have been next. I mean, they saved the country and the, the I remember you write it's a war of annihilation. It really was. I mean, there were all kinds of annihilation orders, kill orders. So well, well that was that was that was the that was the Hitler's war, Hitler's and Nazi Yang. They they want because of their racist kind of ideology, because they saw you know, uh, you know Slavic peoples and, and other Soviet peoples as being inferior, you know, to the Aryans. It wasn't just Jews that the Nazis were, were prejudiced against. Uh, it was other races uh, as, as, as well. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, that, that, and also Hitler's very hostile to communism. 
yeah, and the communist system. So yeah, so yeah, they don't, you know, it's not just an ordinary Operation Barbarossa. It's not just a, a normal kind of military operation. <clears throat> you know, right. it's it's a it's a, a yeah a war of destruction, a war of annihilation. Yeah, and it's a war in which on the German side, all the conventional rules of warfare are you know are, are set are, are, are set to set to one side. And of course, it's the war. It's it's in the context of Barbarossa. That you get the <clears throat> emergence of what we call the Holocaust, yeah, you know the, the, the mass mass the massacre of Jews by the Nazis during the Second World War begins on the Eastern Front in 1941 to 1942 with the with the Nazis the SS um, execution of a yeah million. the Einsatzgruppen you yeah. mentioned them in the book yeah yeah that's exactly. Yeah, really crazy. I mean, and his, Stalin still, I mean, after the war, he still is a player. He's still kind of manipulating the Cold War, Korean War. Uh, really, like, it's a aptly titled book because he was really at war for almost 15 total years away, larger to a larger and lesser extent. Yeah, he kind of, after the war, he steps back a bit. Yeah? I mean, the war takes a huge kind of personal toll on him you know he starts to go on long holidays you know three four month holidays every year on the black black sea um you know he lets his subordinates take more decisions and take more responsibility and and deal with saying he, he still you know, deals with all the big stuff and an amazing lot of stuff you know, uh, you know uh, but yeah th th there's a certain uh, there's a certain kind of way kind of like he, re he reaches a a peak of kind of performance during the war and then you know he, you know he, he steps back from that he doesn't kind of have the energy or you know right. maybe the inclination to continue at that same kind of uh, uh, you know level of intensity as he did but yeah but sure okay yeah yeah he fights the Second World War, then he fights the Cold War, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, with the West. Um, you know, he, he he presides over the reconstruction, uh, quite quite a successful reconstruction of the country after the war. He continues his campaigns of uh, you know repression in various forms, you know, in order to protect you know, the Soviet socialist system as as he as as he as he as he sees it. So he, you know, he remains kind of like you know, uh, yeah. Right until the end of um, uh, his life, you know, his death in 1953, remains kind of, you know, an active, engaged, hands-on uh, kind of leader. Right. I mean, it, it's a great book. There's so much in here. There's tons of stories about the origins of the Cold War, how he dealt with a lot of uh, Churchill, Roosevelt, Truman. But uh, what would you like to add or anything I missed before we wrap this up? We're at about 60 minutes. Right. Okay. Um, no, not not really. Um, um, apologies for the technical uh, no, kind no, of. Uh, it happens all the time. I, suppose I, I, I want to draw your attention. Yeah. Okay. So that 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 was a, you know, a book that I published in two thousand six, and I wrote, I published several books since then, which you mentioned um, at the beginning. If people are interested in the war, then my other you know big war book is the biography of uh, Marshal Georgi Zhukov, yeah, Stalin's general, which, which kind of like. It takes forward various aspects of the discussion uh, in Stalin's War, so people might want to have a look at that if they're interested. And then my my latest book, which will be published um, in a couple of months' time, is this book here. I can see show the cover. Yeah, it's called Stalin's Library: A Dictator and His Book. This is a book about Stalin as an intellectual, Stalin as a reader. Um, but it does have actually also has quite a lot of st military stuff. About Stalin's reading of military strategy and various things to do with with the war war as well. So, so my kind of like, you know, my research about Stalin as a war leader is like you know, is ongoing and continuous. It's kind of uh, endless uh, in a way. My understanding of him is people underestimated his intellectual abilities. He or just because of his nature, he didn't come across. The, the most important thing to know about Stalin uh, really is, okay, two most important things, great war leader, but also Stalin was, you know, an intellectual, a serious guy. He was an intellectual dictator, yes, um, and it's his intellectuality and his life as an intellectual, his life as a reader, his life in a world of ideas, which is the key to understanding every, everything he does, everything uh, you know uh, 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 about it. If you want to understand why Stalin was such a brutal dictator, why he did all these these terrible things, yeah, was responsible for all these terrible actions and these, these massive kind of like human costs, right? You have to understand that you know 
uh, the nature of Stalin as as an intellectual. Yeah, but maybe that. But maybe we have something we can discuss. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. Come back. Come. I'd love to talk about that book. That sounds fascinating. And the yeah. best place to reach you, Jeffrey, is your website www.jeffreyroberts.net, correct? Yeah, and as I said, I mean, the website, I'll, I'll be launching a, a, a new website, same address, much, much better website, uh, which, yeah, which people, well, I think people will find um, very useful. Yeah, I have a quick question from Gameplay. He asked, Stalin was a, earlier in his life a gangster and a bank robber. Did he, was he a person who read about other gangsters and bank robbers? Do you know about that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, he wasn't a gangster. And, and a bank robber. Uh, during um, the period of the 1905 revolution in in Russia, he was um, engaged in organising armed groups which carried out various um, expropriations, yeah, to get money for party funds, including bank bank robbers. But that wasn't his main kind of function. Main, main, you know, mainly, you know, Stalin was a political activist. He, as I said, he was a an intellectual. He was an agitator. He he wrote. He was a journalist. He wrote stuff. And, yeah, he engaged in political debates. He went to meetings. That was made, this sort of armed, uh, you know, violent stuff. This gangster kind of stuff was very very peripheral uh, to, to you know, uh, you know, uh, you know to, to his life as a, as a political activist before the Russian Revolution. And that's dealt with in my um, Stalin's Library book, by the way. I'm okay. It's a book about. On his library, the books he read, he, he wrote, his life as an intellectual, but it's also a biography of, of Stalin, and it, it deals with all the most important aspects of Stalin's biography, including this question that's raised here: is, is that is that you know this whole question of to what extent he considers he could be considered to be a bank robber? My answer to that is no. He wasn't. Gotcha, gotcha. We yeah. can learn more about that gameplay. Come back in a couple of months because I'll have Jeff back on and he can talk about that. But again. Great. It's, uh, thank you for being here, Jeffrey. It's Professor Jeffrey Roberts, and the title of the book we did discussed with a lot of other uh, involvement of some of his other books. It was Stalin's Wars from Cold War, from World War to Cold War, 1939 to 1953. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thanks. All right, take care. Stay there. Stay there.